Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, Mason, I want you to know that I read an article this week that said four cups of coffee is actually good for you. And uh, I tend to read articles that affirm what I want to do anyway. So um, <laughs> truth be known, if I had four cups of coffee, I'd be in the hospital. Like it's just, I, I'm too wired myself already. Uh, but really, hey, I, I, just to amen what he said, if you've got your alpha list and you, you know, like this is the person and you've kind of gotten lost over uh, the holidays, uh, man, this is your week. So please make the call and, um, and that would be a great thing. And the pray first thing is awesome. Please be a part of that. You know, one of the things when you study revival, when you study the great works of God, when you study these seasons of time, and there's one in every century since the foundation of the Christian church somewhere in the world, you realize that one of the necessary ingredients of every move of the Lord is a unified prayer movement. And that's what this is. It's, it, this is part of a unified prayer movement. These videos that you'll see will be different pastors and ministry leaders from around here. So you'll get to hear a bunch of different voices and, and, and just be affected by the passions of these unique individuals. And, and so please take advantage of that and pray together with the church in South Florida that God will do something that he will move in ways that we've never seen in this region and desperately need and long for. So be a part of that. All right, I'm going to begin the message a little bit differently today. I'm going to show you a clip from an episode of the Chosen video series on the life of Jesus. How many of you have watched at least an episode? Okay, like, so some of you. All right, so here's the deal. You're welcome. You need to go get this app. It's awesome. I think you can find it on YouTube as well. But these guys have done a terrific job. They're faithful to the scriptures. They've really studied the history and the culture and all of that stuff. They've got great sets, amazing actors. Like, I've been pretty blown away by this thing. You know, like, I binge-watched this stuff from time to time, and it's really good. They've got two seasons of, I think, maybe eight that they're going to do. They're trying to tell the whole story of the life of Jesus, and it is the largest crowdfunded project in history thus far. It's amazing. But the clip that I'm going to show you is from the episode uh, in which Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, to be his disciple. And here's what I want to do before I show you the clip. I want to explain to you why that's such a big deal. Like when you watch the clip, you're going to look at Matthew's face and go, oh, my goodness, this man is stunned. And then you're going to look at the disciples of Jesus and go, oh, my goodness, these guys are ticked. They are. How did it work? What did it mean to be a tax collector? See, in the days of Jesus, the Jews were under Roman occupation. And so the way that that worked is that when Rome came and they occupied a territory, after they raped and pillaged and plundered its people, they got on a map of the territory. And then they divided it up into taxing districts. And then they went into each one of the taxing districts and they held a public auction. And they auctioned the role of tax collector for the taxing district off to who? Foreigners? No, to the local people who knew where all the money was. And then they came to the winner of the auction and they said, all right, so here's what we're going to do. You're going to need protection and we're going to give you force. So we're going to give you some soldiers and they're going to protect you because you're going to need that. And then in addition to that, if you need to collect it up by force, hey, you got our guys. So you're going to be able to do that. Unbelievable, right? Think about that if you're one of the rest of the citizens in that district. What that means, practically speaking, is that, I don't know, your neighbor, I don't know, your brother-in-law, I don't know, somebody you went to school with, somebody that lived down the street from you. At the very least, someone in your community, one of your countrymen, paid to your hated enemies and conquerors an exorbitant sum of money so that they could help your hated enemies and conquerors take more from you than they had already taken. So you just love that guy. Oh, he's your friend. And hey, why did he do that? So that he could take from you as well. Because that's the way it was designed. 
You won? Okay, great. Here's our soldiers. Okay, wow. Hey, you know what, Mr. Tax Collector? You need to collect up X number of dollars from your tax collecting you know, district this year, and you need to pay that to Rome, but here's how you make your income. You collect up as much as you want, dude. Take as much as you want from your own people, and these guys did. They were wealthy, wealthy, wealthy people. Because they took way more from their own countrymen than they needed just to pay Rome and make a living. They sold their soul, literally, for money. Every one of these guys, before they stepped forward to bid to become the next tax collector, knew that if they did become the next tax collector, one of the consequences was that they would be barred from the temple in Jerusalem. Why does that matter? Because in their day, that's where sacrifice for sin would be made. So what am I saying? I'm saying in return for the money that I get for being the tax collector, I have no sacrifice for my sin. I've sold my soul. Their families, and they knew this, would completely reject them. You are dead to me, son. All their friends would completely reject them. Their nation, their heritage, their reputations would be gone. And with all of those things would go all of the moral barriers that otherwise come with all of those things. Like if you have a God and you feel like you're going to be accountable for your sin, you know, or if you have a a family, you know, you live a certain way. Well, people in our family, we, we do this and we don't do that. You know, if you're part of a community of friends, there's an ethos, there's an ethic. If you're part of a nation, of a heritage, if you care at all about your reputation, there are these boundaries, seen and unseen in our lives, that we don't cross. Or if we do, we're like, oh, these guys erased all those boundaries. They did it for money, and they did it to get rid of the boundaries. They had more money than they knew what to do with, and they had no moral compass whatsoever. There's no passion that they did not indulge. There's no pursuit that if their heart wanted to do, they didn't go after. There's no thing or person that they would not buy. You got to get a picture for these guys. And so it is that when Jesus calls Matthew to become one of his disciples... Ultimately, one of his apostles. Ultimately, the writer of the first book of the New Testament. It's like shock and awe, man. And not just for him, but for everyone else. But notice too, because this is true to the biblical story. Matthew, who has tasted everything that this world has to offer, does not sit around thinking about it. Like he doesn't go, hey, you know what? I'm going to take that under advisement. I'll think about it and I'll get back with you in a couple of weeks. You know what, Jesus? I'll pray about it. You know what that is in Christian code, don't you? That that means no. Right? Hey, would you be able to have a, you know, I'll pray about that. That's a no. You've experienced that. He's tasted everything the world has to offer. He knows what it tastes like. Sand. And he wastes no time. Watch how these guys imagine it. I think it's beautiful. We live in the same world, Matthew. Next. Besides, what else are you going to do with a mind like yours? Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. 
Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh. What are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going? Guys, let me go. Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're going to throw it all away. didn't get it when I chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. I'm glad we passed by your booth today, Matthew. Yes. Shall we? We have a celebration to prepare for. You will regret this, Matthew. What's the tablet for? Grabbed it without thinking. You can put it back. No, no, keep it. You may yet find use for it. Where are we going? A dinner party. I'm not welcome at dinner parties. Well, that's not going to be a problem tonight. You're the host. I love that line. That's not going to be a problem tonight. You're the host. It's amazing. The only downside to showing that clip is right now all of you are going, Tom, sit down, show us the rest of the thing. All right, so here's the deal. We're beginning a new study today. We're calling it, He Gave Us Stories. And what we're going to be doing is taking the next 12, 13 weeks, we're going to be looking at most of the parables of Jesus. In other words, we're going to be looking at these stories in which Jesus has a paradigm-shifting, life-transforming, eternally penetrating point to make, and that he uses the power of story to make with us. Story breaks through all the barriers. Story seeps through all the cracks. Story wraps its arms around us and before. Before we even know it, it makes its point with us in a way that just teaching it didactically can't. We find ourselves making the point before we even know we've just passed verdict on us. It's amazing. And the reason that I show you that clip is because Matthew, who again became the writer of the first book of the New Testament, not really creatively named, but Matthew is the name of it. Is the only one who gives us this story. So like when Mark sat down and he wrote his account of the life of Jesus, this story isn't in it. When Luke sat down and he wrote his account, this story isn't in it. When John sat down, it didn't make the cut. When Matthew sat down, he's like, listen, I, I got down to my final edits. This story is going in it. And I think because it teaches this principle. It is that forgiven people forgive people. And maybe more than any of the other disciples of Jesus, Matthew, the tax collector, had personally experienced the power of really, really, really profound and deep forgiveness. And 
he understood as well the power of that forgiveness to transform our own hearts. Listen, when you are deeply in touch with just how much you've been forgiven by God, it makes you forgiving of others. And not begrudgingly, not as a task, not as a chore, not as an ought to, not as a have to, and this is what good Christians do, and oh, well, I guess I have to do this. No, 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 no. Naturally, natively, reflexively, instinctively. Wait a minute, so you've forgiven me this much, I can surely forgive this person and this person and this person and this person. And by the way, what a blessing that is. Not just to them, to you. Pretty incredible. We find our story today in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 23. But the story, like every other story in the Bible, takes place in a context. So what is the context? Jesus is talking about forgiveness. And I want to tell you, I'm going to kind of summarize what he has just said to his disciples. And then probably after he said it, he had to go around with smelling salts, honestly, to wake these guys up. Because it is a shocking, significant statement. And it's going to have the same effect on you. Jesus effectively says to his disciples, listen, no matter how many times someone sins against you and no matter what the sin is, you are to forgive them. How do you like that? That makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Let me repeat it. No matter how many times someone sins against you and no matter what that sin is, you are to forgive them. It's easier to just turn it off when you're at home right now, isn't it? Like you're like, oh, you know, get all this social pressure. You don't want to walk out. If I'm home, I can just change the channel. I mean, it's like, holy cow, what is, you know, because we don't think about it that way. We're like, no, you know, I can forgive this and I can forgive this and I can forgive this and I can forgive this, but I'm going to be honest. I got a whole list of things I cannot forgive. I don't want to forgive. I don't think would be right for me to, no matter how many times, no matter what it is. Forgive them, Jesus. Please defend that. (laughs) Please explain that. How does he do it? He gives us a story. He says this, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So you can see the picture. You've got a king and he's loaned money to a bunch of his servants and he's like, all right, I'm calling the debt. I'm going to settle my accounts with all of these people who owe me money. And as a part of that, it says that when he began to settle these accounts, one servant was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, which means nothing to us today because we don't measure money in those terms. But he's referring, no doubt, to 10,000 talents of gold. So what is 10,000 talents of gold? It's 167,000 years worth of wages for an average daily laborer. You get the idea? Jesus gives us this servant who owes the king an insurmountable sum, an impossibly huge debt. There is zero chance of this guy ever being able to pay this back. None. And so then since he could not pay, duh, his master, the king, decided to collect what little bit of it that he could. How? By ordering him to be sold as a servant or as a slave to someone with his wife being sold and his children being sold and all that he had in payment to be made. So let's liquidate this man's estate. Let's sell him and his wife and his kids to people who will pay me money to have them as their servants for the rest of their lives. Let's collect up what I can and be done with it. By the way, that's what would have been expected in that day, in that age, in that culture. Jesus is not in favor of slavery by telling this story. That's not the point at all. He's speaking to them about a practice that they understood in that day and would have expected this guy to do. So they're all like nodding along going, 
Yeah, that's what I figured would happen. And watch what happens, though. The servant who realizes the predicament that he's in. Oh, baby. I mean, he's feeling it for himself, for his wife, for his kids, all their assets. Like, everything is on the line. This servant fell on his knees, remember this, imploring the king. And what does he say? He says, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. All right, what is that statement? It's a statement of lunacy. It's absolutely ridiculous. There is no chance that this guy can pay this off. Have patience. What are you going to live 167,000 years? Collect up all of the money from your wages over all of that time? Not spend a penny on yourself and pay me back over 100... Am I going to be around that long? Like, I mean, how is this going to work exactly? Have patience with me? Yeah, that's ridiculous. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Guys, his only hope is in the heart of the king. And as it turns out, there's hope. For it says, and out of pity for him, out of compassion toward him, the king's moved by this. The master of that servant released him and completely forgave the debt. All 167,000 years worth of it. And, you know, I mean, the guy's relieved, and his wife is relieved, probably. They're crying, they're hugging, right? Their kids are like, whoo, we just got our future back, you know, like all their stuff they still get to keep. I mean, think about that. They're relieved. Everybody there is relieved. I'm listening. I'm relieved. You're relieved. It's exactly how Jesus wants you to feel. Because the story's not over. It says that when that same servant who's just been forgiven this impossibly huge and insurmountable debt went out from the castle, he immediately found one of his fellow servants who owed him not 167,000 years worth of wages, but 100 denarii, which is about 100 days worth of wages. So what is this experience with the king that this man has just experienced done for him? Well, for one thing, it's reminded him of some dude who owes him money. He's like, oh, I was reminded I owe the king money. Thankfully, I got out of that one. But that guy owes me money. And so he goes to seek him out. And it says, in seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down on his knees. Does that sound familiar? And he pleaded with him. And hear the language. It's the same. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you. But which, by the way, in this guy's case, is very doable. Hey, man, I got some Jordan sneakers. I can sell that. I can, you know, I got this, I got that. There are things that I can liquidate. If I scale back on all of my expenses, I can show you my books and whatever. And I think over the course of the next year, I can pay you in full. If you will have patience with me, I really can pay you and I can prove it. It's doable. It's reasonable. And how does he respond? It says, instead... This man refused and went and put him in prison. It's a debtor's prison until he should pay the debt, which is completely outrageous. But why is it completely outrageous? Because it's not completely outrageous to require somebody to pay you what they owe you. I mean, can you imagine calling your mortgage company? Maybe you call them tomorrow. Try this out. Hey, you know what? I think think I'm just not going to pay you anymore. So there you go then. I'm putting you on notice. No surprises. Check's not coming this month or next or forever. Like, that's it. We're done. Would it be outrageous of them to foreclose on you? No, it would be expected. It would be reasonable. It would even be affirmed. It'd be the right thing to do. 
It's not outrageous to ask somebody to pay you what they've agreed to pay you, what they owe you, what you've lent them. What's outrageous is to be shown such great forgiveness and to continue to be unforgiving. What's outrageous is to be given such such great and amazing grace and to continue to be ungracious. What's outrageous is to be be given such great mercy and and to remain an unmerciful person. How, How do you have that actually happen to you and your heart remain like a piece of stone? That's outrageous. And not only are we outraged as we take in this story, every character in this story is outraged. It says in verse 31 that when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, like they witnessed this, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned this unforgiving servant and said to him, what? You foolish servant, that's not the language he uses. How about this? You sadly mistaken soul. You, forgive me if you tell your kids not to use this word, you stupid servant. I mean, it does work. It does apply. It's accurate. What does Jesus, the master storyteller, do? He says, give me the word in your heart for this man. How have you judged this man? Because you've passed judgment. Everyone who hears the story has at this point. Oh, that's the word. You wicked servant. Yeah, I'll use that. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you in response have had mercy on your fellow servant as I just had mercy on you. And then Jesus tells us what this kind of wickedness deserves. Says in an anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay what? All of his impossibly huge insurmountable debt. How long is that going to take? And then he delivers the punchline. He says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Takes the microphone, drops it, walks off. Gotcha. He is the master. Have you ever thought about how much God has forgiven you? Because I think that we sort of underestimate that a bit. You know, we we think about how much God needs to forgive somebody else because, you know, they're worse. Or are they? And we underestimate it because we underestimate God. That's our fundamental problem. We do not have a high enough view of him. And I understand that he is infinite and we are finite, but we still do not have a high enough view of him. And as a result, what we don't realize is that any offense, even these little things that we excuse, that we call stupid, that we call nothing, white lies, you know, whatever you want to say. Oh, that's a nothing, that's a nothing, that's a nothing. Oh, that's a something. Everything's a something with God. How could it not be? He is the infinitely glorious one. He is the infinitely valuable one. He's infinitely priceless and precious. And he's the universe's greatest treasure. Well, we recognize this amongst people, you know, like if you commit assault and battery on me, okay, that's one thing, you know, like, I mean, you'll probably go to jail and, you know, whatever. Maybe there'd be a fine, I don't know. You do that to the president, we got a different story, don't we? He's a different being by nature of his position. Oh, so then what is God? Any transgression against God creates an infinite debt automatically. So I'm creating infinite debt day after day after day after day after day after day. 
as I live imperfectly and make my way through this life. Think about Christmas for a minute. What is that? It is God looking down upon humanity, knowing that they have created an infinite debt against him and saying, I am going to go down in the person of Jesus Christ, supernaturally conceived by the power of my spirit. I'm going to take upon myself real flesh and blood, a body. I'm going to become the God-man, the one who has an infinitely righteous and an infinitely valuable life to offer and in the place of all who will have me. I, at the expense of the life of my son, will pay your debt for you. It's what you've been forgiven. It's the grace that you've been shown. It's the mercy that's been given upon you. And through faith in Jesus, we receive mercy instead of punishment. We receive grace instead of wrath. We receive pardon and forgiveness instead of judgment and, you know, sorry, but damnation. Like, I mean, that's what we get instead of what we deserve. And the whole point of the story is that that should change us in here. It should make us different. The reflexive response of the heart that is deeply in touch with just how much God has forgiven it is not to hold on to a grudge. It's not to refuse forgiveness. It's to forgive. And it's to do that no matter how many times and no matter what it was. So back in December last month, December 4, so um, a month and five days ago, there was a police officer, maybe you saw this on the news, in Texas, Mesquite, Texas, who was killed in the line of duty. His name is Richard Houston. And so Officer Houston was called to an Albertson's grocery store, and I guess there was like a domestic dispute in the parking lot of Albertson's, and apparently it just kind of got out of control and escalated to the place where Albertson's like, hey, you know, we can't handle this, so like, you need to send over an officer to handle it. So anyway, there was a man, and he's having it out with his wife. His girlfriend was also present, so, you know, there's that. And Officer Houston comes to the scene. So he gets out of his police car, and he walks over there to try to talk to the guy and kind of calm him down, and unexpectedly, this guy just pulls out a gun and shoots him right in the chest and kills him. Then he turns the gun on himself and shoots himself, but he lived. And I just want to stop there for a minute and say, when you see the men and women who wear the uniform, who serve us in this community, uh, say thank you to them, if you would. Give them a hug, you know, if you will. Uh, You might want to tell them you're going to give them a hug before you actually just walk up, because otherwise you might end up in cuffs, right? Like, But I mean, think about that. That's the kind of thing that they venture and that their families venture every single time they go to work. You don't know what you're going to get. They perform their job under the highest possible level of scrutiny and pressure. And what they do is noble and it is needful. So anyway, this man had been a police officer for 21 years. He was a decorated veteran of the police force, 46 years old, married father of three. He was a known Christian, like everybody he worked with knew that. And there's these stories about how he, you know, prayed for this and how he did that. They found one of his Bibles in his police car after all of this transpired. And what I want to do is show you a clip. It's about a minute and a half long of what his 18-year-old daughter, or part of what his 18-year-old daughter Shelby said at his funeral. And it's heavy. It's heavy, as it should be. And the reason that I'm showing this to you is because... It's really evident when you listen to what she says 
that not only has she forgiven this man who five days before she makes this statement, a month ago actually today um, is when she says this, but it's evident that she's not only forgiven this man, but that she wants God to forgive him. It's pretty profound. So watch and learn. I remember having conversations with my dad about him losing friends and officers in the line of duty. I have heard all the stories you can think of, but I've always had such a hard time with how the suspect is dealt with. Not that I didn't think there should be justice served, but my heart always ached for those who don't know Jesus. Their actions being a reflection of that. I was always told that I would feel differently if it happened to me. But as it's happened to my own father, I think I still feel the same. There has been anger, sadness, grief, and confusion. And part of me wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father. But I can't get any of any part of my heart to hate him. All that I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. I thought this might change if the man continued to live. But when I heard the news that he was in stable condition, part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road, I'd get to spend some time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, simply to tell him about Jesus. I don't know whether I want to hug or high five her. I think maybe both. I have no doubt that Officer Houston was a great police officer, but I have zero doubt that he was a great dad. (laughs) He and his wife have raised a girl who speak to all of us. And apparently they've talked about this story or certainly they've ingrained this principle into the heart and life of this young person who is powerful in my opinion, in this moment, beyond description, look, forgiven people forgive people. And of all the disciples of Jesus who was maybe most viscerally in touch with this reality, Matthew takes the cake, man, tops the list. And we don't do it begrudgingly. We do it because the forgiveness that we have been shown changes us and it makes us forgiving. So, you know, maybe today you're Matthew and you're still inside the tax collector booth, you know, and Jesus just walked by and he just offered you a different life. He's offered forgiveness to you. He's offered the filling of his spirit to you. He's basically said, look, you tried all this other stuff. It it is like drinking sand. So have you had enough? Be repurposed and come and follow me. Maybe you're Matthew today and you're like, I don't know, what do I do now? You know, do I lock the booth up? Like, do I chase him down the road? Like, no, you don't have to run from from him. He's come to you. As soon as the service is over, just come forward and we'd love to pray with you and answer your questions. And maybe you're going, well, I'm, I'm, I'm Matthew. I'm in the tax collecting booth. But I don't know yet that I'm, I'm ready, but I'm willing at least to take the journey of considering following Jesus. And, you know, I think that's fair. I mean, if you think about it from Matthew's perspective, Matthew knew all about Jesus already, or at least he knew a lot. 
mean, he was a tax collector in the city of Capernaum. That was Jesus' home base for all of his operations. 80% of what you read in the gospel takes place, or in the gospels, takes place in the Galilee region. And Capernaum was his hometown. That's where he lived. So surely Matthew had heard him preach, or at least heard about his preaching. Surely Matthew had seen him do miracles, or at least heard about his miracles. It's not like Jesus is walking by as a completely unknown commodity and stops and says, Matthew, son of Alphaeus, come and follow me. And he's like, okay, that sounds good. I don't know anything about you, but you know, no. It was a considered opinion. That's what Alpha's about. Thursday night, 7 o'clock, bring a friend, really. You can pre-register, that'd be great, but we always do have extra food, so just in case. Maybe you're Matthew. You're still in the booth. Come forward, we pray. But maybe you're instead like Shelby Houston. You're a Christian who needs to forgive someone. And uh, like everyone else who needs to forgive someone, you know exactly who the someone is. And you've been hanging on to it. And it is poison to your soul. Be free. I want to give you, in closing, three steps. I call them simple steps, but it's only because they're simple conceptually. They're not simple to do. Three steps toward forgiveness. And the first one is to fully charge the defendant. Don't take it flippantly. Don't go, yeah, you know, okay, I know I need to forgive you. Be thoughtful about it. Consider the crimes and consider the end results. Hey, dad, you left when I was a kid, never saw you again until maybe now or maybe just never. I don't even know where you are, but I'm going to forgive you. But before I do, I'm going to consider what you did and all of the different ways that it impacted me, all the issues that it created for me in life, all the deprivations that I experienced. I'm not going to be flippant about this. I'm going to say, no, no, here is what I'm actually forgiving. Okay. Fully charge the defendant. Secondly, drop the charges. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a decision. And make the decision before God that this person's debt to you is satisfied. You will cancel it in light of the debt that he has canceled for you because it is an infinitely greater debt that you've had canceled. But there's payment to be made there, isn't there? Like, I mean, my debt's canceled. Why? Because Jesus paid it. You'll cancel their debt. Why? Because you will pay it. You'll stop demanding them to pay it. And the last thing is dismiss the case. And this is hard. I mean, all of it's hard. But but what happens in this moment? Okay, I'm I'm charging the defendant and I'm, I'm dropping the charges. And then, you know, like tomorrow, one of these things that you've been triggering over for 30 years happens. And then what happens? All of the passions come and all of the memories come and all of the anger comes and all of the resentment comes and the poison starts to flow in your veins again. It's not easy. Forgiveness is supernatural. Look at what God has done. How has he forgiven you? He has supernaturally moved in such a way as to achieve your forgiveness for you. Oh, guys, let him supernaturally move in you in such a way as to enable you now to forgive someone else. It requires the work of the Spirit of the Lord in you. It requires oftentimes other people who are Christian in your life. It requires oftentimes counseling, Christian counseling. Go to our wellness page. We've got a list of counselors. Our biblical counselor 
I just heard on Friday has all kinds of openings. She works with women. She's really good, and it's free. Contact the church office, and we'll try to help you get together. But please understand that forgiven people forgive people. And here's why. Because we can't help but to do it. Our hearts are not stone. They're hearts that have been forgiven and shown great mercy and transformed by great grace. So consider that. Let's pray together. Father, we are, we are grateful that as you look down upon us in our brokenness, Lord, and in our waywardness, that even when we went through life, you know, committing all kinds of sins and, you know, all kinds of stuff against you, having no idea the kind of debt we were creating, but nevertheless creating it. You looked upon us in love and you looked upon us in mercy. You moved toward us in grace, God. Have patience with us and I will repay. No, 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 that's, that's lunacy. That, that's, that's an impossibility. How long is that going to take? If it's an infinite debt, it's forever. And so you came to us as the infinite one. who was a man for all men who will have him. Offered his perfect life and his infinitely valuable one as a sacrifice for sin on a cross that we through faith in him, by laying down our pride, by laying down our lives, handing them over, might be forgiven filled with your spirit and repurposed, debt paid, and now, God, work in our hearts and lives. God, so cause us to reckon with what you have done for us that our hearts soften instead of harden. And having been forgiven, we become forgiving. Having been shown mercy and grace and being overwhelmed by it, we become those who shockingly to some people will dispense mercy and grace and can point to Jesus for the reason. Do these things, we pray, for the sake of your kingdom, for the revelation of your son, and for the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.